So hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is February 1st, 2024, and we're talking to Laurie Holt. Laurie is professor of psychology until recently at Carnegie Mellon University, but now just recently moved to the University of Texas at Austin uh, nearby. Uh, Laurie's lab studies perception of speech and speech sounds and sometimes sounds that are only statistically sort of like speech. And I hope that will become clear as we go along what that means. And uh, she uses some really clever experimental designs to study these things in humans, mostly in humans. And she combines them with physiological measurements like eye movements, event-related potentials, and functional imaging. Hi, Laurie. Welcome to Texas, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Also with us uh, today are... Uh, Nicole Wicha, our Hi. resident human language expert and podcast long-timer. <laughs> Hello. Hey. <laughs> and Marina Silvera, who is an expert on auditory system physiology, who just joined our faculty recently, and yeah. this is your first time on the podcast. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Great. Great to have you. Thank I'll you. You'll be on many times. I will. <laughs> and I'm Charlie Wilson. So, Laurie, some of your work focuses on this phenomenon, speech phenomenon of categorical perception, uh, which apparently is a distortion of sensory reality that's forced on us by our auditory system mm -hmm. and that we learn it at some time during language acquisition. It's usually associated with language sounds. And uh, the most usable explanation for it always ends up being this pa, ba, Mm -hmm. continuum, and if we create a sequence of sounds that go from pa to ba by gradual changes, and then we listen to it, we don't hear a gradual sequence of sounds, we just hear pa, 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 and then ba, 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 ba. And uh, obviously, uh, this is subconscious, and we've learned it subconsciously at some point during our development, and we don't control it. And you can't really undo it. It's mm -hmm. uh, You're stuck with it. So... Um, your work is stretching our understanding of that way beyond just speech and mm -hmm. also telling us something about when we learn that and how we learn that and even showing us that we could still learn stuff like that. Uh, so, um, so could you start <laughs> by giving us a, an overview of the kind of sound classifications there are and how pervasive there are and how real are the things we hear? Is everything that we hear already been distorted by some... Uh, illusory mechanism in our mm -hmm. subconscious that's changed the world? Wow, that's a big, big place to start. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, I think when I came into the field, this idea of categorical perception was extremely strong, right? That, and, and like you say, that that all examples of a sound in English like B in Ba were essentially equivalent to the perceptual system that even if there were little distinctive differences between your ba and my ba, the auditory system just glossed over those and arrived at, you know, kind of a canonical ba. Um, and like flashing forward, I think these days people think of maybe speech as ca uh, categorized more than categorical. And there's nice evidence now that the brain isn't throwing that information completely away. We can, we can measure it and we can see fine-grained differences that not every time one utters the sound B, it's not exactly the same. And we hear it as the same kind of thing. But an example, a visual example is probably helpful. 
that you know we can look at all manners of um, breeds of dogs and a, a Dalmatian is very different from a Chihuahua, from a Labradoodle. And we can obviously see those differences, but they're nonetheless members of the same category. And so when we say it's categorized more than categorical, the categorical idea is like, just throw away all that variability and differences across our voices and our pronunciations. But if it's categorized, those differences are still there. We can still very much tell a Chihuahua from a Labradoodle but we know that they belong to the same class. And so these days in speech, people think about how models of, of category learning in other domains, like in vision, might inform our thinking about speech category learning. And so it's a little bit of a shift, um, very subtle shift in thinking about this, but this also allows us to keep detailed information about who said what and have that be able to um, have the linguistic information of what someone said interact with the, the vocal content of how they said it and in what emotional state they were in when they said it and things like that. It doesn't all just get tossed aside in favor of the linguistic meaning. So it's a little bit more complicated but also a little bit more interesting. Are, are many things... Uh, so the, the thing that made this categorical thing categorical yeah. was it you couldn't really hear the in-between sounds when you generated them. Yeah. And probably, I guess, if from what you just said, if each of the sounds along the continuum from pa to ba were said by a different person, mm -hmm. that you would be able to distinguish those yeah. people. But it would still go from pa to ba yeah. right? all, of it, all at once. There and is still, there. yes, so there's a, there is still a warping, and we can very clearly set the... It, the, the boundary between do, two different classes of things does seem to be exaggerated in the neural system and then also in our behavior. And we can map that very clearly, even though we can also see that the brain and behavior, if, if measured in a kind of sensitive way, we can see evidence that it's, it's keeping hold on some of the kind of internal variation within a category, even if it's exaggerating the differences between them. The categories are obviously good to have. Yeah, because yeah they make it easier for us to understand each other. We categorize we everything, right? You know, when we talk about, you know, and they can be for good and they can be for bad, right? Stereotypes are a form of category. Yeah. We're grouping things together in a way that, you know, for good or bad may not belong together, but form some kind of systematic pattern in the mind. Um, and we categorize things, you know, quite immediately, right? You can even just on my voice alone, you're probably able to tell from a little snippet, you know, my my gender, my approximate age, maybe even things like socioeconomic status. Um, and uh, research has shown that even just very, very brief snippets of sound can be categorized from all kinds of different angles to give us some judgment about what, what kind of grouping something fits in. So obviously it's a, just a form of object recognition. So mm -hmm. Any, everything is object recognition at some <laughs> level, but um, but it seems more rigid than mm -hmm. some of the others. For example, depending on the language you learned, you may have a very hard time uh, learning some sound distinctions that other people find easy because of the language that they learned, and it's hard to get past those. That's right. And um, but not all classification. Categorization is like that. I, I change my categories of stuff all the time, constantly. Mm -hmm. 
So what's the, where does yeah. the line get drawn? Uh, and maybe what brain, what's the brain mechanism of, of this, of the like really hard learned things yeah. and the flexible things? That's right. So we can see this even in speech, right? So the languages differ in the, the sounds that they use to convey meaning. And we don't come prepackaged knowing which set of sounds we need to use in our caregiver's language environments. We have to pick those up and learn them. And we think of that as like a category learning challenge of picking up a set of sounds that tells us about meaning in English is different than picking up the set of sounds that tells us the meaning in Japanese, for example. Yeah. Right? And over a pretty protracted period of development that, that starts very early, even before the first birthday, um, the brain commits to a kind of organization that's very efficient for rapidly encoding the language of the home community. Um, and this, uh, Nicole can tell us better, but this will be a very different situation if there are two languages in the household and a different set of learning constraints. Um, but the fact is that one, you know, once the brain is kind of committed to an efficient processing scheme for one set of kind of regularities of one language, it becomes quite difficult to get it to move out of that system into something new. And, and that's challenging because that's exactly what we're doing when we try to learn a second language in adolescence or adulthood. Um, and you're right that it can be very, very difficult. For a long time, it's been taken as kind of a classic example of why, uh, why adult learning is so difficult. There's kind of a lack of plasticity there um, that many people have taken to be evidence of a kind of critical period for language. Um, so is there, is there a critical period for that learning that kind of stuff? Um, I am not a believer. No. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> so say something about it. Um, uh, well, I'm going to go on the record here. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. They, um, so there's some. I, I think there's some really. So it's probably not that simple. There's certainly maturational things, but like just considering the the type of experience that one has early in the first couple of years of life versus later, right? Um, if you're learning a language later it's not just the learning that's different. You're already productively using your first language and you're using it probably much more often than this language you're attempting to learn. You're probably embedded in a community that uses that first language much more often than the language you learn. And so one of the little pieces of evidence that made people think twice about like a strict closing of a window in like a neurobiological sense was that if you really take seriously looking at the experiential patterns of what second language learners get, you can see pretty graded effects of, of the time spent on the first language and the time spent on the second language. So if you were to have an, an, you know, a, an imaginary experiment where someone just stopped their first language today and only went forward learning the second language, it would look very different than someone who continued heavy use on the first language while attempting to learn the second language. And the fact that there are those gradations um, in natural human language learners, it suggests like, that it's not a hard biological stop, but rather some interplay between what you have and how your brain has sort of established an efficient representation for your first language and how that's interacting with the more limited experience you're getting from your second language that you're attempting to learn. So is it just the experience though? Or yeah. I mean, your research 
is is looking at that learning and yeah. the type of learning that's happening. Right? It's just not. It's not just exposure. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Our research has been showing that. Um, the kind of learning that's evoked in different situations, right? Like the kind of situations that might at least partially characterize child learners and adult learners. Um, you know, taking learning where you're just merely being kind of like washed in sound and having experience with sound in a kind of an exposure sense versus being explicitly instructed by a teacher engages very different neural systems. Um, but those, those neural systems are yet still different from learning systems that are available when you are actively engaged with using sound. And so we can see that there are multiple inroads to learning these categories, and they all produce somewhat different outcomes. So one thing that's different about really early learning of these sounds is that the mean, you don't know any of the meanings. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, when you're learning your first language, I guess this would happen if you had multiple languages being spoken around you, but you're just hearing the sounds that make up that language and learning to recognize those sounds and tell them apart. Mm -hmm. And so that's a special kind of learning. It's not reinforced learning. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the most simple kind of um, statistical analyst, analysis mm -hmm. kind of learning, where I'm just learning this is followed by that and that is followed by this, even though I don't know what any of it means. Mm -hmm. And I can't even make those sounds yet. Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, one of the things to recognize is this, this learning that's happening is starting very early, and likely even prenatally at some level, right? The third trimester, uh, fetuses are hearing, and they are also learning about sound. So they, they in the first hours after being born, they know about their mother's voice because they've been getting it through bone conduction um, for the last you know, couple months at least. Right? So there's no blank slate in the auditory system yeah. and learning has been going on. Um, it's also really, I think, uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that it's informative to look at what the, the environment, you know, the physical environment and the sound environment provides an infant learner um, that might be different from the way we see the world as adults. So um, now that I'm at UT Austin, I have a new colleague named Chen Yu who specializes in this and thinks about looking at the language learning environment from the perspective of a little infant. Well, one of the things that's different about them is they're sitting on the floor, right? They're not, they're not mobile yet. They're kind of well positioned. And, and so when you think about what are the visual objects that an infant sees from that perspective? They're very different than what they would look like to one of us sitting at the table or at five feet or six feet tall. Um, and by, by really kind of understanding the environmental contingencies that happen while caregivers are playing with their babies and what the babies are seeing and how that's directing their attention to what they look at and how that, that looking becomes contingent on what the mother is saying, it really it changes the kind of perspective that one takes about what's learnable, like where the statistics are in that input that, that kids are going to be able to pick up on and learn. So, so oh, sorry. So do we know, for example, if kids that were raised exposed to two languages would they have a better auditory learning, so they would perform better 
in auditory totally learning. Totally defer to my esteemed colleague <laughs> and my laugh. Well, from, what I, from, from the research that, not my own research, but the research that that is out there, uh, the idea is that these uh, category perceptual yeah. categories are um, it, it there's two answers two parts of the answer so one is that there's there's some research showing that that window of closing on to the sounds of your language lasts a little bit longer mm-hmm. um, the other is that you have more sound categories right so there's more phoneme categories if the languages are different and there's some cool research kind of showing it suggesting that uh, depending on if you think of the the dimensional space of these sounds of the phonemes and where they lie um, that depending on how far they are from each other, you may be able to learn sounds between the categories better than a sound that you've never mm. heard at all. And so okay. I don't. So I I'm struggling to think about yeah. how that research maps onto some of the things you're say, suggesting. Like one of the things that Charlie started with was this idea that well, if I come in and now I you know I'm I'm a baby that learned English. Yeah. I come into the world with these this preconception of what language sounds like. And now I have to learn new patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, is that these are, are? Is it acting like this vortex of like yeah. making pulling the sounds into one of the little category spots, or is it really just about the way that we're ex- trying to learn has changed? Are we doing mm-hmm. something different in the learning itself, or is there a physical properties that we just can't hear? I mean, yeah. obviously our ears can hear it, but yeah. that our brain can't. Well, there hear. is like, I mean, back to. Charlie's question about whether we're, I think, hallucinating all, you know, all, all sounds by virtue of our, of what we've learned before. We're working on it. This is completely not speech. So this is just tones, right? So, and the very simplest, simplest, simplest thing you can do with an auditory system is to say, did I hear something? Mm -hmm. Like, was there a sound out there in the world? You know, and probably very ancient ability too, of like, you know, walking through a forest and detecting a twig breaking is is very meaningful signal. So we we've been looking at whether that very basic ability to just detect the presence of a sound is influenced by the regularities of sounds that you've experienced recently. And um, so you're listening in noise and you just have to tell us if you've heard a tone. Um, so kind of like almost like a classic hearing test. Um, and we can set that tone at a level that makes it quite difficult for you to hear that tone, but still still doable. You know, you might get about 80% correct. And then what we can find is that um, if we, across, across trials where you're trying to detect this tone, we change the frequency of the tone. You can still do this task perfectly well. It doesn't matter what frequency it is to detect it. It's in a narrow range where they're all the same. But now if we change the probability with which you'll hear a certain frequency, such that some frequencies are really likely and others are very rare, we see this really very rapid and very quite profound change in your ability to find out if there's a tone in the, even present in the environment. And the change is such that you actually get quite a bit worse at detecting those rare tones, you, which means that you literally, you can't hear them as well. And the only thing that makes you hear more poorly is the fact that they've been kind of rare in your environment. And it's, so... You're building you, your hearing around the statistical yeah, properties of the world. That's that right. Listen. And, and this, this sounds like a bad thing. Like you're basically inducing hearing loss <laughs> by, by experiencing the world. But it's probably a good thing because what you're doing is you're, 
you're moving your perceptual system to put uh, effectively emphasis on things that are probable and typical and you're building this like model of your world as you go along that like you say is, is changing even the super fundamental aspects of hearing of is there something out there yeah. but, the, uh, but along some of these classification schemes yeah. I imagine there are uh, uh, sounds that could never be considered the same sound yeah. they're so different and sounds that are always considered yeah, the same so what are the, what are the dimensions of Similarity. I mean, they're not just oh, yeah. the normal physical dimensions of loudness and yeah. And I'm going to make it even worse for you okay. because it's not just that it's not the physical dimensions. It's also that which physical dimensions matter mm-hmm. are also dependent upon the context that you're experiencing them in. So, for example, um, back to your B and T example. Uh-huh. Um, if I ask you to tell me, was that a beer or was that a pier? Uh, you would rely on one cue if you're in a very quiet quiet room. But if I put you in a room and turn on the air conditioner and it becomes noisy, you'd, you'd rely on another cue. And you'd do so implicitly and without even noticing. But we can measure these changes and these differences of how the system is just constantly adjusting and reevaluating how it uses information. And we can see that if you run into a um, talker with an accent, that violates some of the expectations of English, you'll shift yet again and reweight how you use your cues. And, and all so this stuff is happening subconsciously. We have completely no and utterly subconsciously. Like even though I've built these stimuli and created them myself, I don't know it's happening until I look at my data. It's just you don't feel it or know it. And most of us, you know, unless you're in this business, can't name what cues of speech are, right? They're very, very difficult to even verbalize. Um, it's, you know, it's easy to say, you know, I can tell an apple and a banana apart by their color, but also their shape. But tell me the difference between a, a, a ba and a paw. Uh-huh. We, don't, uh-huh. we don't have a vocabulary for that. And so it's really, really kind of subconscious and implicit. But in our studies, we can show that if we you know, we turn this accent on and then we switch it back to more canonical, typical English, and we turn the accent on. We can do this every few trials, and the auditory system will just keep bouncing back and adjusting how it's, how it's best using the acoustic information at the moment. So when in the brain is this happening? Because most <laughs> of us, yeah. you know, think that if I'm conscious of something, it must be my cortex that's doing mm-hmm. it. And if I'm not conscious of it, it must be my Something in my brainstem or something like that. I know that's yeah. That's well, not supported by evidence, but it's what everybody thinks. What's the real truth about it for these? Things? I think that I think this particular example I've given you. We don't yet have data, but we are actually like we're, it's become recently possible to collect these kind of data in cortex in human listeners who are doing this. So, for example, in a an epilepsy patient who's being monitored with deep electrodes in the cortex can do a study like this. And we're running studies like this, actually, to try to see, like, how is... And it's probably less about where and more about how. Like, in the the broader auditory cortex, like, these weightings are probably instantiated in the networks of neurons that are responding. And these are very, very fast changes. So we're not, like fundamentally changing the brain, we're fundamentally changing interactions that are happening. Um, And so I think it has to be cortical in some sense because 
These effects are extremely dependent upon the inventory of speech categories you know, which have come to be represented long-term and are, are likely to be cortical at some level. So if I'm just listening to this, one of these continua, mm -hmm. and you record some electrical activity in my cortex, mm -hmm. uh, will, will you see the jump from ba to pa? Or do you see a continuum mm. of electrical activity? Um, For the specific sounds, you mean? Yeah, so I'm listening yeah. to this continuum, and I'm hearing ba, 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 and then pa, pa, Yeah. But if you're looking at my cortex, do you see at the moment that my perception shifts, do so, you see the electrical so, response shift? So that's a the perception specifically. So the, the, part, the part that I'm having trouble yeah. with is that there's not one thing happening, right? Yeah. So you have the learning happening. Yep. You have the categorization happening. So so there's going to be a big change in your brain when you hear that change. But what part of it was perceptual? What part of it was categorization? Yeah. What part of it was... Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I, I was trying to map in my... As it's you were really talking good. about these parts, I was trying to map, like, where in the brain am I now? Where am I now? <laughs> like where, yeah, it might have been different areas as well. Right? Yeah. Are, are there multiple areas? How right? about inferior right. calculus? Okay. I'll yeah. Example, would that be a go. good place right. for this? Yeah, I think so. I think so. One of the, the experiments that you showed, you changed the frequency, right? Yeah. Like upward sweeps yeah. and downward FM sweeps. That's right. So we have some data in mice, in mice mm -hmm. that uh, there are a lot of neurons in inferior colliculus. They are they respond selective to either upward or mm -hmm. downward FM sweeps, as well as neurons in the dorsal cochlear nucleus, the octopus cells. Mm -hmm. So we have these two distinct nuclei where they encode different neuron codes specifically different directions of frequency modulation sweeps. And, and we saw in our human listeners that th that didn't really require much learning, right? Because yeah. It, those those sounds with a, all when all the tokens were an upward sweep, they were created or treated as very similar, and those with a downward sweep were treated. So maybe that's something that that similarity that comes out in behavior is gifted to the system by the way the auditory system is developed. So there's some yeah. it, relating back to the, the inferior colliculus. I was thinking about the auditory learning, mm -hmm. and there's at least some research I know it may be controversial yeah. in some domains, but on, on the frequency following response mm -hmm. and how people with an inferior colliculus response that aligns more closely to the frequencies in the sounds they're hearing are yeah. better at learning languages, other sounds, uh, new yeah. languages, that there's a oh, yeah. potential connection between like the maybe learning they have and new better phonemes. resolution, like better auditory resolution. Right, yeah. better auditory resolution. This is Nina Cross's yeah. work. In yeah. And so... Nicole, tell me what frequency following, what you mean by that. So if you have, a, of course, a simple frequency would be easy, right? So if you have a 20 hertz frequency, um, at the firing rate of, the, the, of cells in the inferior colliculus, if they align in, in phase with that, uh, the frequency of the sound, uh, the better they align, there's some uh, indication that that might... Uh, make people better at hearing the sound uh -huh. itself, which would make them better auditory learners. So this is phase locking of the neurons. Phase locking of the, of the neurons, neurons. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Phase locking onto the sound, uh, frequency of the sound, yeah. So can you see, ch uh, learn changes in responses in the inferior colliculus, like the kind that we've been talking about? So there's, there are a few labs that are working by looking to descending projections from the auditory cortex to the inferior colliculus. Mm -hmm. So it's still looking to changing inactivity in the inferior colliculus during auditory learning, but focus on this descending projection. So from this information that's coming mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. cortex. 
But going back to the frequency modulated sweeps, in the empirical vehicles is very fascinating because when you are recording through in a mice on a single cell level, and then you present like upwards or downward sweeps, distinct cell types will selective respond to only like downward sweeps mm -hmm. or only FM sweeps. So they're very specialized in code this changing frequency modulation, mm -hmm. which I think it might be, there's mm -hmm. no way to prove that in mice, but might be important component for understanding speech, right? So, so I'm curious then if you can do that, because if your calicus is pretty, you know, like we were saying, sort of like deep in the brain, unconscious, mm -hmm. um, if you're recording from the inferior calliculus and you have categories, preconceived categories, and let's say that those two sweeps do, are not distinguished in your category, mm -hmm. the inferior calliculus should be responding to it, but then at what point do you lose that distinction? Or, or is it lost mm -hmm. in the is it lost in the at the level of the inferior calliculus or is it yeah. lost at the cortex? Like do the do you still have those signals somewhere in your brain, but your cortex is saying, Oh, that's all the same thing. I don't really care that they're different. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's okay like that level? they're different because I mean they're Chihuahua and the uh -huh. dog, yeah. Like in this like, context, I can see the differences, but I don't care about them. I don't them care. Anymore. I can I can hear yeah. them and so some somewhere in your brain it's sending you information but you're not picking it up as you don't care because your categories don't distinguish yeah. them. Does that make sense? Do you yeah. think? Do you think you would? Do you think the change in that categorical perception would change at the inferior calculus, or do you think it's higher? Or I think later. I, mean, I, I think say it's a hand. complex question because the, when we think about the auditory pathway, there's so many projections, yeah. right? So the inferior calculus project to thalamus and cortex, but then there's a descending projections coming back to the inferior calliculus from the auditory cortex. So an experiment, cortex. if the inferior calliculus changes, you don't know whether it was local or yeah, whether it exactly. was just yeah. reflecting a change yeah, in the Yeah, exactly. The feedback. Yeah, <laughs> there's this feedback yeah. projection. So it's a very complex question to answer, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in that sense, it could be happening. Based recent research has been showing that um, learning these new sounds, like when you're, mm -hmm. when you're speaking to someone with a foreign language, um, I, you know, that experience that you have where you can't understand what they're saying, you yeah. can't understand what's, and then finally you hear, you yeah. couldn't hear it. Um, and and I, I was thinking about how the component of modeling the speech sounds ourselves. So speech is a little different because mm -hmm. we can make the sounds, right? Yeah. And so um, there's some work showing that as we're listening to someone, we're adapt, we're adopting yeah. their speech patterns so that we can make better sense of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So that we, mm -hmm. so if we were to answer, we answer almost in their same accent. Or than their same yeah, and we, as we are talking, we are actually getting auditory feedback from our own voice. So probably, arguably, the voice we hear the most is our own, right? And that there's lots of nice research to show that that auditory feedback from our own voice as we're talking, it can, you know, um, is extremely essential to keeping us on target with our speech. And if you manipulate that, and you can like put a record one speech with a microphone and feed it to a computer that's going to perturb that and then feed it back to headphones with just a tiny, tiny delay, um, you can shift someone's own perception of their voice in subtle ways and their speech production will immediately compensate. Mm. But it seems to also do it for other people's voices too, mm -hmm. right? And the, the idea that we kind of converge on each other when we're right. speaking or pick up on the characteristics right. yeah. of speech. I was just thinking about like with the example of the foreign 
someone with a foreign accent. Mm-hmm. Um, when what what is that moment that you finally figure out what they were saying? Right? Like, yeah. did, did that become part of that category? It's always easier, for example, if mm-hmm. you know the language, you know, mm-hmm. the other, right? Mm-hmm. Like as a Spanish speaker, yeah. If someone is speaking with a heavy Spanish accent, um, I can I can it's make sense of what they're you. saying because yeah. I understand the categories. But yeah. you know, someone interesting. Not. Yeah, we 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 have been looking at this in a simple way in some of our work of of um, having people just listen to sequences of speech sounds passively and you know just simple samplings of words and those words are specifically chosen to have kind of underlying acoustic properties that align with typical American English um, and then at the end of listening you know listening to eight or nine of those they get uh, a test stimulus that's designed to probe what kind of acoustic information they're using in their own perception of speech. Mm-hmm. And then what we can do is we can play games about which which sounds we're sampling over those eight or nine sounds they're passively listening to and whether the acoustics of those sounds are consistent with American English or whether they violate American English, like mm-hmm. some, some kind of artificial accent. And the benefit of going artificial here is that we can really precisely control all the acoustics and their correlations between different dimensions and how they are conveyed. And people are extremely rapid. The perceptual system is extremely rapid on picking up on this. And instead, I think instead of forming new categories, this might be a different kind of learning and that you're taking the existing categories that you have and, um, and uh, really rapidly kind of reweighting and adjusting how much you rely on different sources of information. Do you rely on this cue or that cue? Do you do and and that kind of adjustment is probably faster and less costly for the brain than building something up for new. And um, it's, I'm trying to think of a more um, a better metaphor than trying to think about speech cues, which are hard, like we already said, hard to verbalize. But you know, if you imagine what are the dimensions that are diagnostic. Um, of telling, um, I'll use an example from a postdoc in the lab. She studied, how do you tell a goat from a sheep? Right? You might look at its wooliness or its ears or the shape of its oh, I snout. I thought this was a joke. No, no, it's real. <laughs> she has a paper. She has a paper. It has great figures. Uh, and it's true. It's like there are boundary cases yeah. of sheep that look very much like goats and goats that look very much like sheep. But there's a single diagnostic cue that once you know it, you'll always know the answer. And it's the directionality of the tail. Oh, what? But, but who knew that, right? We feel like we've seen a lot of these things. We just not picked up on that regularity, right? <laughs> but you can shift between all those cues. You can like overweight the wooliness, or you can overweight the shape of the ear, or what. You can. That's a little bit more imaginable on a sheep or a goat. But the same thing is true in speech sounds. And mm-hmm. in the case of listening to American English, we can show that adults have kind of a, you know, 16 different acoustic dimensions might inform us about whether something's a B or a P, but they're not all equally informative. We have a weighting on them. And we can show that in adults, there's this kind of hierarchy of perceptual weights. And it takes a really long time to develop. Kids start to learn these categories when they're infants, but they don't get all these cues kind of sorted out in an adult-like fashion until early adolescence. Hmm. Um, which might be kind of related to why you can kind of keep learning a little bit longer. Um, 
But even once you have these, you remain really dynamically able to adjust the weights. And I, I mean, I think it's a very different thing to, to build a category representation and to sort out all these informational weights than it is to just adjust the weights, um, which is probably a faster learning. It allows us to be dynamic and accommodating of variability in our environment. Okay, well, I'm not going to complain anymore about the auditory system. No, you, you used to complain like, about the auditory that, system. Well, I was just doing Heresy. it a few minutes ago. <laughs> and, uh, obviously, it's doing it all in my best interest. Yeah, yeah it's not distorting. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's assisting, it's right. yeah. making you more efficient. The well, best system. Thank you very much <laughs> for joining us, Lori. Thank you. It's great. And uh, Nicole and Marina. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. It's thank great. you, Charlie. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.